hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the fourth episode of KSE Talks. I'm Benjamin Hilgenstock, Senior Economist at KSE Institute and your host for today's conversation. In this episode, we'll explore critical topics around energy sanctions and specifically the oil price cap. I'm pleased to introduce our guests now, Chris Cook, senior reporter at the Financial Times, and David Shepard, energy editor at the FT, who have done extensive work on these issues and will be able to help us understand uh, recent developments. In our conversation, we will address important issues regarding price cap violations, including what is known as attestation fraud and inflated costs. And we will look closely at Russia's attempts to circumvent sanctions through the use of the so-called shadow fleet. Finally, we will discuss how to make the price cap more effective and preserve its leverage going forward. Without further ado, there's a lot to talk about, so let's begin. Welcome, David and Chris, and thank you for joining us on KSC Talks. Hello. It's a pleasure to join you. So maybe, uh, David, I'm going to start with you. So if we look broadly at oil sanctions, how would you uh, characterize their effect? And uh, specifically, what is your evaluation of the price cap? Just earlier this uh, week, you uh, published an article on uh, violations of the price cap. So maybe this would be good to start us off for our discussion. I think in football, they often describe this as a, as a game of two halves. And initially, the price cap saw some pretty good success. You know, we saw Russian oil prices for their own brand of crude fall to big discounts versus sort of the international oil price, normally known as Brent in the market. Sometimes as much as $40 a barrel at the beginning of the year is basically the combination of the EU blocking the vast majority of seaborne Russian oil imports and the price cap coming in at the same time made it very difficult for Russia to, to find new buyers for its oil. So that meant that the amount of money flowing into the Kremlin was far lower than it otherwise would have been. So I think, I think most given the aim of the sanctions, that was broadly a success. The second aim of the sanctions was whether people like this side or not, but it was to keep the Russian oil in the market to make sure that there wasn't this huge price spike that would have been created by the loss of one of the world's biggest oil suppliers, with many Western governments, you know, perhaps self-interestedly, keeping one eye very closely on not having runaway energy crisis that could see them voted out of office or weaken support for, for Ukraine among the Western populations. But what's happened in recent months suggests to me that the price cap is not working anywhere near as well as it once was. We reported this week that while initially lots of Russian oil was trading below the price cap, very few barrels indeed are now under that level, that $60 barrel cap they tried to place on crude oil. Most Russian oil seems to be trading closer to $80 a barrel, much closer to the, the international market price these days. Those discounts have come down. But that means a lot more money is flowing to the Kremlin than was before. And the reasons for that are that, in very simple terms, Russia has got better at circumventing it. And they've done that in a variety of ways, from buying up oil tankers which operate outside the Western system, which is effectively the method they use to enforce the price cap. But also, we believe or strongly suspect that there's been they're using every method possible when they still do need to employ the use of Western services, that there may be some tomfoolery, shall we say, in the background. 
be that trying to inflate the cost of shipping to just to cover for the discount on the oil or lying on the attestations they have to give to the Western insurance companies, which are allowed to carry the oil only if it's below the cap. Thank you very much. I think this was a, a great summary to set us off for, for this conversation. So, so maybe to summarize, so, so there's, a, there's a fairly fundamental issue, which we call attestation fraud, where basically the oil is transported with uh, G7 service providers. It is sold above the 60 for which we have some evidence or clear hints. But on the attestation, it will say that it was sold under 60. The other issue is the inflated costs, which you've described. And to an extent, that the sanctions regime is creating an arbitrage opportunity in this market is not unexpected, right? The the question is, who is this someone that you were describing that can potentially siphon off this money? So maybe from your from your research and your reporting, who are these uh, entities and individuals that may be somewhere in this chain of custody that could siphon off this money? So the key thing to remember about the price cap is that the thing it tries to regulate is the price of the oil as it leaves the ports in Russia, right? So it's it's not a regulation on how much people can pay when it's been processed, when it arrives at another port. It's just a regulation on the on the oil at that specific moment. And if you if you're willing to pay under sixty dollars a barrel in the Russian port for this oil, you're allowed to access Western services. If you pay over sixty dollars, you're not allowed to. What's really clear is that there is still a large fleet of vessels serving the Russian ports, moving Russian oil that have Western insurance. We think it's somewhere between a quarter and a third, depending on how you do how you do your definitions of ships, tankers moving Russian oil are still holding Western insurance. And at the same time, we know now with fairly high confidence that prices are so high that the real prices being paid for Russian oil must be well over $60 a barrel. Officials think that basically none of it is trading under $60. So we've got this gap, right? We can see about a third of the ships, a quarter of a third of the ships still have Western insurance. We don't think anyone is actually paying under $60 a barrel in a Russian port. So how do you get around this, right? So what they... They could just be straight lying, right? They could just be people just filling in the forms and making up numbers and saying to their insurers, oh, no, 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 don't worry. The, the amount I'm paying is $60 a barrel and then just, just lying. We've detected hints of something using customs records from Russia, something subtler, which is that what they do is they effectively say, so in reality, this is say $80 barrel or an $80 barrel of oil, and it costs us, say, $5 to ship it. And so it's an $85 barrel of oil in, in India. What we'll do is we'll say it was a $55 barrel of oil and we spent like $30 shipping it. And because the price cap only regulates the price as it leaves the port in Russia, it doesn't care about the fact that you're obviously lying about about the cost of shipping. And that creates an opportunity for, for, for someone to capture that extra money. So who is capturing that money is the, obviously the big question. And we've got two big clues about it. The first is that when you talk to Indian buyers, they tell us that the shipping for this oil is organized in Russia. So if you put up, you ring up, you know, Rosneft or whatever, they will say, yeah, 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 sure. We'll sell you a barrel of oil at $85 and it will be in, you know, your port will be in Sika on, you know, the 5th of January or whatever. And there's not a conversation about the shipping costs. All of that stuff is internalized into the, into the, the price uh, negotiated by the, by the Russian seller. And what that means is that the I think we can say with some high you know as a, you know as economists 
we can say with some high certainty that the extra money that we see going missing is likely to be captured by the Russian seller. There is one other little trick in all this, which is that the the ship owners themselves obviously have a little bit of an opportunity here because they have to be paid some of, some of this money at least has to go through them. And we know now that an increasing share of the of shipping is is basically, we think, controlled by at least Russia-adjacent entities. So there are these ships, lots and lots of ships have been bought since the outbreak of the war with very mysterious ownership who have become very interested in working only with Russia. So there's a good reason to think that the the missing money that we can see the gap between the you know the this this oil that's apparently sold under the price cap but seems to cost eighty five dollars in India it's very likely that Russia is capturing the difference. Thank you very much. Maybe a, a follow up question on this. So if I understand this correctly, then the price cap regulation says that the cost for shipping and services has to be at what is called commercially reasonable rates. So. How would you think it is possible that this scheme appears to have been uh, implemented for a considerable amount of time this year and and seems to be uh, still functioning, either of you two? The simple answer is no one is checking. The brutal truth is that we have created a system where effectively what happens is the insurers are sent a letter by the ship owner saying, we promise that we will obey the law and we won't we won't take oil above the price cap. The buyers at the the ultimate buyers at the other end. So the in, in cases we've been talking about, the Indian refineries have to fill in a uh, piece of paperwork that says, "Yeah, well, we, we've 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 looked through all the costs and they look reasonable." But there's no no entity whose job it is to go around and chase up all this paperwork. And if someone were to say to their insurer, "Yeah, so I've got this uh, thirty dollar oil and it's going to cost sixty dollars a barrel to ship it," so, you know this. Funny how life is at the moment. There is not a there's not a an entity that says to the insurer, "This is unreasonable. You shouldn't be doing this." And there's no one who's asking for that paperwork proactively. So we don't know what the declared shipping costs are. We don't know what the declared oil costs are that are given to the to the uh, insurers. So the whole thing is is a bit of a black block. It's it's really a it's sanctions on the honor system is the real problem with here. I, I, would, I would say there is the strong possibility that in time, regulators in the West will come back and look at a lot more of this, I suspect, which they've done in the past, as we saw with the Iraqi oil food program, where you effectively let it run during the time and then say, OK, if the public pressure becomes too high, because people say this is clearly there is some evasion going on here and there may even be complicit behavior on the parts of people of people we potentially have jurisdiction over, then they will come in and look at it eventually. And they may we may be starting to see the initial stages of that now. We have seen a couple of companies sanctioned by the UK and the US for potential breaches of the price cap. But that's taken from when the price cap came in in December until November of this year quite some time to you know not find one single company up until then doing anything untoward. But as I say, historically, we have seen these things. I think it is important to note up front as well, to come back to that earlier point, is that the almost the, the dirty little secret of the price cap is that, yes, 
Western countries want Russia to get less revenue. I don't think that's in dispute. But they are constantly weighing that against keeping global prices low enough so that they don't get spikes and th think that arguably you undermine the long-term aim, obviously, of having Ukraine win, of having Russia lose, by losing public support because of too high oil prices or too high inflation or all the kind of economic pressures that people are facing. So there may be an element, I can't say this with certainty, and I'm not trying to make accusations, but that people initially are almost prepared to look the other way to keep that oil in the market. And then in time, they can almost clean up afterwards and say, Rook, we've come back and we want to see your paperwork now. We want to see what you've been up to. And if they feel that something has been egregious or that they've been helping, you know, putting profits ahead of what they were meant to be doing under the price cap, then, you know, a few people could be on the wrong end of enforcement actions. That remains to be seen, but that is partly the suspicion in the oil market by now, what is going on. I think there's, this is a completely unempirical, and my apologies to you for this, Ben, for being not an academic, but on a purely vibes-based sort of, my purely vibes-based impression at the moment is that something that's going on with sanctions enforcement, particularly in the United Kingdom, particularly in the United States, is there's more interest in taking a chisel to some individuals in these networks. So over the last few weeks, we've had, not just in oil, but across the piece, there have been little attempts to get at people who they think are important linchpins in Russian sanctions evasion. And I think part of what the what we may be seeing is like a renewed... When the 12th sanctions package by the EU comes out, when the oil prices re like is, is renewed and reviewed, we may see more interest in, right, okay, so... Actually, the rules are kind of where they've got to be. Who do we have to now start sanctioning to make them work as an approach rather than trying to sort of find cleverer rules? Maybe a follow-up question for David. So you mentioned that there, there has been some uh, enforcement action, that there have been some sanctions imposed by some entities and vessels in the US and the United Kingdom. And I think we also saw US authorities requesting more information from a quite significant number of, of vessels. Which leads me to the question that the the issues that you outlined earlier, are these enforcement issues that can be addressed that way, including by uh, basically, as Chris outlined, delivering some warning shots to certain people involved? Or is there something uh, with the current sanctions regime that also would be needed to to adjust it to allow for more efficient enforcement? I think you can strengthen the existing price cap regime. There are certain things that can be done from putting a body in charge of actually regularly checking the paperwork of the Western companies involved, for example. Perhaps placing restrictions on, if you think of, of the, of the well-known term in banking of know your customer, they almost need to, to apply a sort of know your buyer on the other side in the shipping industry. Because a lot of the way that Russia has found to get around the price cap is by building up their own shipping fleet, by buying old, frankly, often rust bucket oil tankers from Western companies, and then using those to operate outside the Western system. Now, a simple thing that could have been brought in with the price cap was heavier restrictions on, guys, 
maybe don't sell those secondhand tankers to the Russians right now because it's going to make their life a lot easier to get around this. Belatedly, that would appear to be under consideration. There are also other things that, that are being looked at. I'm not quite convinced whether these will come in or not, but we, we reported on this this week as something the EU is discussing, which is using existing environmental laws to have inspections of Russian or, or vessels carrying Russian oil that may be suspected of, of operating in Western European waters with substandard non-Western insurance. The obvious choke point they appear to be looking at are the Danish Straits right now. It's a very narrow area where, where they have to sail literally through Danish waters to access international markets when coming out of the Baltic. And there are genuine environmental concerns for once. As I say, a lot of these old tankers Russia has bought are frankly rust buckets. So they could use that potentially as a mechanism to say, hey, we're allowed under the law to check you guys out to make sure that you have proper insurance and that you're seaworthy, frankly, to be sailing through our waters. That doesn't necessarily involve a full-scale blockade on Russian oil, but it, if you're a Western oil shipper, it's going to make you think twice if you're being pulled to one side and they're looking at your papers while you're actually at sea. It's all about increasing pressure, making things a bit more awkward, a bit more complicated. And again, that may start to increase the discount the Russian oil sees once again. There are other things out there as well. We've, we've, one of the, we mentioned before that the, the price cap operates on the price of the, the oil basically delivered import, the so-called free on board price. We could look at, they could look at moving to regulation of the actual sold price. So this, the price inclusive of shipping and insurance, which would mean that all of these sort of fun and games with, with shipping prices wouldn't, would cease to work. But that'd be quite radical and significant. I think there's a, there are other things I've heard about sort of in the, on the margin of these things about trying to force up the, the need for insurance as well. So trying to, um, there are these sort of ideas that have been kicking around. I don't think they've, they've not, we've not reported things, they've not reached a sort of a level of official, official, official discussion, but ideas about forcing people to hold bonds effectively that if they, if they insist on not having insurance, making them take out effectively insurance against not having insurance that will just make life slightly more complicated. Just lengthening those journeys, like taking cash off them, making life slightly more uncomfortable for these, for these shippers and then hopefully nudge them away from these routes. I think it's important to say as well that from, from people in the US Treasury, for example, insist that while the vast majority of the oil is now trading above the price cap, that Russia has still entailed costs not just in the first half of the year when they were seeing major discounts on their oil, but also it's not free to build up your own shipping industry or quasi-insurance industry. The whole point of the price cap it was that originally, you know, something like 90% of all insurance came from Western providers. Most ships and so on were traded or, or booked through London. Doing these things on your own is not cost-free. To be blunt, it may have long-term benefits to Russia, sadly, in the sense of if Russia has a large shipping fleet and can handle more of its own oil trades, then arguably they, they will capture more of that money over time. But the initial cost to build that up at the moment, and that you know, are in the tens, hundreds of millions, possibly even billions, to, to build this oil tanker fleet. And that's money that's not going towards being spent on weapons. Instead, it can be used against Ukraine. 
Yeah, so, so maybe let me um, let me ask a couple of questions about about the shadow fleet. Um, I know Chris is kind of tracking tankers for for fun. There are lots of different estimates out there as to how big Russia's shadow fleet is and what a shadow fleet is. Maybe you could walk our uh, listeners through how they should conceptualize this and what Russia has achieved so far in terms of building it up and what it has not achieved. I think basically every publication has a slightly different definition of what the shadow or grey or ghost fleet it's is. Shadowy. Shadow, it's definitely shadowy. But the, the, key thing about, the key thing about the ghost fleets are anonymity, right? So if you, to, to go, maybe go back one step, the, whole, the way that sanctions operate is they go and find a human and they make that human's life miserable. So they say, your ship has gone and done this thing. It's taken Iranian oil or Russian oil above the cap or whatever. We are going to come and prosecute you. We are going to ban you from using banks. We're going to ban you from, from living a nice life outside um, sanctioned happy countries, right? And the, the way that the ghost fleet fights that is it hides who the ultimate owner is. So when you look up a ghost fleet vessel, what you'll, you'll go think, okay, the first thing you look at is the flag. So literally the, the country that's where the ship is registered. You go and look up the flag and you'll discover it's probably a country with a registry that doesn't ask too many questions uh, about who the real owner is. And there are countries. So the Marshall Islands in particular is a real menace on this. You can register your ship to, to, to come there. And that, that's a, a place where they don't ask too many questions, right? Then, on the paperwork, obviously, when you register it, when you get insurance, you have to put a company down. And when you look, what you'll discover is that the ownership of the company of the of the ship will almost certainly be in a, an extreme secrecy jurisdiction. We're not talking here about you know Jersey. We're talking here about the Marshall Islands, which is a, a very extreme secrecy haven. Then there will be a ship manager who will be usually the who are effectively sometimes called the um, the owner's broker. So that's a person whose job it is to effectively book the voyages and engage with the with all of the chicanery. That person with the shadow fleet will often be another entity in the Marshall Islands, or they'll be a sort of they'll be more overtly connected to Russia. Actually, at the moment on some of this stuff, the key thing about all these people is that the as soon as the US Treasury turns up with a warrant or whatever, they quite quickly discover they can't find a person to whom they can, a real human who they can make suffer consequences. So they can hit the companies, they'll hit the shipping, the ship owner, which will be some anonymous thing in the Marshall Islands, or they'll be, or they'll hit some Liberian company, but then mysteriously, no one will seem to suffer. And that is the key thing. It's all about using anonymity to breach, to, to allow continual breaches of sanctions. So in terms of numbers, one of the analysts, I think, one of some analysts I've spoken to are very good. I think we have the estimates of something like one to 200 extra ships have moved away from, if you like, the regulated conventional shipping market into the grey market since the outbreak of the war. And some of that will be directed Russian shipping. So some of that will be entities built perhaps by the Russian state or Russian oil majors. Uh, directly, some of that will be entrepreneurial. You know, guy in Hong Kong who's decided that this is the this is where the money is, um, and it's very difficult because of this extreme anonymity to sometimes piece this stuff together. Although there are obviously people who are quite are not that good at the old anonymity stuff. So we had a we wrote earlier this year about this peculiar company called Gatic Ship Management, which is an Indian ship manager. It gave an address based in a in a like a shopping mall. 
And it's, it made this horrific sort of operational security mistake, which is it registered all of the ships it managed to itself. So rather than having 40 different little companies in the Marshall Islands that it was secretly the puppet master of, it gave its own name and address on some of its shipping paperwork. So we were able to see there was one hand controlling this this big group of about 50 ships. So at one point, it was, this thing was the 10th largest tanker operator on the planet. And it emerged in the course of a few months, something like that. And, the, and then we wrote about it and it disappeared basically overnight. It, got, it never actually got incorporated or it only got incorporated very late. So it was a sort of informal thing. But if they hadn't been stupid enough to put their name on their actual name on their paperwork, they basically volunteered to show their existence. Now, we don't know who's actually behind Gatic or and those ships, I should point out, are still running and they are still obviously controlled by the same mind when you look at the routes they're running for the most part. But the what we can say is they do a lot of they have a lot of engagement with Rosneft. They're really strikingly interested in Rosneft oil. So it, it may be some business partner. It may be someone who's just seen that as an opportunity. We just don't know who is really behind it. Uh, but we do know they are, whoever they are, they, they're really, they're, they're interested in Rosneft oil in particular. That, that's very interesting. So now on the, on the ownership, I kind of understand the story. Now, when it comes to insurance, it is, if I get this right, rather complicated and costly to set up oil spill insurance for super tankers. So if you really want to circumvent the price cap or operate out of the price cap system, you not only need a ship that is owned by a non-G7 entity, but you also need alternative insurance. Do you have any insights into how this has been done? Because something we've seen in the last couple of months is also that apparently there are alternative insurance arrangements that are popping up, and this has led to a rather quick decline in the share of, of G7 services still involved in Russian oil exports. So actually, there's a, there's a sort of quite curious mystery here for us, right? So a few months ago, when we were in the summer, we observed that Ingestrach, which is a large Russian insurer, was taking on a lot of the, a lot of the Russian fleet. So we could, we, the, basically, when, you, when you're running a big ship, it's quite an important principle of the insurance is that if I run into, if your ship bangs into me, I can find out who your insurer is fast, right? So, so you can usually go on an insurer's website, literally type in the, the number on the front of the ship and it will tell you if they insure that ship, right? You could do that with Ingestrach, right? So you go, if I could, we could go and look up individual ships and see if Ingestrach was telling other ship owners that it insured them. Something very odd happened earlier this year, which is that at some point, someone changed their website and it now watches carefully, decides whether or not you're in a troublesome Western jurisdiction. And then whatever ship number you put in, it, if, you, if it works out you're a troublemaker in the Western jurisdiction, it will tell you it doesn't insure that ship. And the, it's become harder and harder and harder to get sort of accurate information on what exactly is being insured by Ingestrach in particular. Uh, we know there are other insurers out there. There are Chinese insurers, for example. But the it's actually quite murky who exactly is insuring these vessels. We know that the Indian authorities have said they want they want ships coming into their ports to be insured, and they you know there's there's noises about that. But but it, it remains actually a little bit of a mystery who the sort of three quarters seventy percent of the of the ships that don't have Western insurance where exactly they're insured by. And it's also worth pointing out that you. If you were, for example, if I were Rosneft and I 
was going to run a fleet of my own vessels, which I really controlled, I might fancy, because I've got quite good liquidity, just self-insuring, so not bothering with insurance and taking the risk. I mean, the, the strong suspicion in, in the oil market is that a lot of this insurance, these vessels carrying Russian oil are operating under outside of the, the Western system, probably aren't worth the, the paper it's written on. Some of it might be. Some of it might be provided by by Chinese companies that, that have a sideline in this. But what's actually required in an insurance policy for an oil spill, you think of an oil tanker carrying a million barrels of crude oil. I mean, that's that's worth 80 million just for the car goes straight off the bat. But the spillage coverage, the spillage coverage is the big thing. Because if you run aground in the English Channel, if you run aground in the Danish Straits, if you run aground off the coast of Nigeria, you need to be in a position to rectify that quickly because the bill is going to mount up the more oil that is spilled very, very fast. Not just because you're losing the oil, but because you're going to have to rectify the, the natural environment around where the spill is taking place. So normally you'd expect in a, in a Western insurance policy, it's almost like if, if a ship went down or a ship has an accident, it's almost like the big red button is smashed in the insurer's and people scramble. You have people there to contain the oil. You have people there to drain the oil from the ship's hull. And it all happens very, very quickly and is very, very expensive as a result. But it stops the overall cost building up because there's less damage done to the environment that later needs to be rectified. Good luck getting that done with a Russian ship running with what we suspect is Russian insurance from a company we don't really know that well if that happens in the English Channel or the Danish Strait. It might do. We can't say with certainty. Thankfully, very thankfully, we've not had to find out yet. But the strong suspicion from people I speak with in the oil sector is that it's probably, heaven forfend it happens, it will be a disaster. Now, th this is kind of what is behind this um, proposal to require some proper capitalized and transparently credit rated insurance for passage through certain territorial waters, right? So let's let's talk about this um, this idea and this concept. So first of all, I would be interested in what you're hearing in terms of the political conversation that is uh, currently going on. I mentioned you had this article earlier this week where you reported about uh, discussions in Brussels. Are we going to see something like this in the in the 12th package? And then also as a follow-up question, do you think this could be effective and how would it work in practice? I think the European side is keen to toughen this up. I think there's probably a slight element of embarrassment that the vast majority of Russian oil is trading above the cap. I mean, that basically just doesn't look good for anyone that's devised a, a sanction policy. Even one as novel and as nuanced as the price cap one has always been. The US potentially is willing to enforce this a little bit harder. But I think there is a big thing always looming in the background in the US and to, to an extent in Europe too, but even more so in the US. And that's the influence of pump prices on elections. The price that people pay for gasoline in the United States has, broadly speaking, a significant impact on elections. We saw heading into the midterms last year for President Biden, his administration was laser focused on getting the price of oil down, which had spiked after Russia's invasion. They released huge amounts of oil 
from the US's own strategic stockpile of oil. And that was really geared towards, yes, keeping the market supplied, but it was also making damn sure the price came down fast enough so that pump prices didn't play an outsized role in the, the election. We're now 12 months from the US presidential election against Donald Trump. There is every reason to think that there's the potential that Vladimir Putin, you'd suspect, would rather see Donald Trump come back into power, given Trump has said he would try and force Kiev to negotiate. If you're Vladimir Putin and you think, well, I'm not winning this war militarily at the moment, what's the best option I've got for getting out of this with some dignity and my head still attached to my body, frankly, intact, right? You know, if he, if he's thinking, okay, I've started a war, how do I get out of this eventually? I can't just retreat because the embarrassment's too much, but I need to find a way to get out. His number one option is arguably to see what he can play with in the oil market. He's done it before. He's weaponized gas supplies to Europe. Why not weaponize oil supplies? So the last thing the US wants to do right now from a democratic administration's point of view, is anything that might facilitate that spike in oil prices, which makes it more likely that former President Trump comes back into office at the end of next year. So I think the US is going to be very cautious on this. Inflation's come down quite a lot in the US already. Pump prices really aren't that high. But they remain probably the most visible symbol of inflation in the US. And it's always one of these things that, that people, I think, often in Europe forget that because it's almost perverse because the tax rate on US petrol prices or gasoline prices, as they call them, is so low that when you get swings in the underlying price of crude oil or gasoline, you get big moves at the pump. In the US. So you're the garage you drive past every day on the way to work. One day is showing 250 a gallon, and the next week it's showing 350 a gallon, and you freak out a little bit, thinking, wow, that's gone up a lot. What's going on? In Europe, you know, you get a similar swing in the price of crude oil, and the price goes from £1.40 a litre to £1.50 a litre. And you might grouse a little bit and think, okay, it's a bit more expensive, but it's not as extreme. You don't feel it as much straight away. So the U.S. is always going to be laser-focused on on this, and I think that is going to not stop them trying to enforce it, but will stay their hand a little bit. Yeah, very, very interesting, and thank you also for talking about the, the political aspects here. Now, theoretically, if I placed a requirement for proper oil spill insurance on tankers, that, that does not automatically reduce the volume coming out of Russian ports, how would you how would you think that a tanker owner would respond to this? Is it worth risking running afoul of authorities that are tasked to implement this, or is the easier strategy to simply get proper insurance again and thus place the transaction under the price cap? So I think we've got a hint about how they might behave. So we, you know, we again, this is all my vibes based analysis. But based on what happened when the prices, oil price rose over the summer past the $60 benchmark. So what happened immediately was that Western tanker owners, so open, open tanker owners, non-ghost fleet tankers, um, Greek tankers in particular, started pulling back from ru running Russian oil. And it looks as though they appear to have, they started moving on to other routes, right? They'd redeployed their tankers on other routes. 
And then they seem to have waited a few weeks and then gone back to Russian roots. And it looks as though they, it's sort of their behavior is consistent with them watching to see what was sort of regulatorily possible. So they watched it go over the price cap. They worried a little bit. They looked to see what other people did. And after that pause had moved on, they, they went back in. And I think the, we have to assume that the tanker operators, but given there was some potential sums of money involved in, in moving this oil, particularly when there's such a big gap between the price cap and the, and the prevailing market prices, will test whatever regulation is in place. So there won't be, you'll have to, whatever, if you want to ban this stuff, you have to, we'll have to make it work. They won't be able to be done on a sort of, you're not going to be able to scare them with vague regulation. So I think that that's the, um, that's my sort of key learning, I think, from the last few months. Okay. Well, so let's, uh, let's stick to the practical aspects. So, so how could this look like? How does one as a coastal state verify the insurance status of a vessel going through its territorial waters? How complicated is that? What kind of systems would we need to implement to actually make it work? So there is a big advantage, which is so much that insurance is so concentrated in a few places. So the the UK does a you know very large portion of it, and it doesn't have safe harbor rules as well, like the US insurers. So the the rules are quite tough in the UK. They sort of start in a in a reasonably tough place. Not having realised that the um, that your the ship you're dealing with breaching sanctions is not an excuse in the UK. In principle, is what that means. Whereas in the US, they've got quite light, broad latitude if they kind of do what they're supposed to do, they won't get prosecuted, uh, even if it turns out there's been a breach. So that's one thing, right? So we have relatively simple capacity to check on the Western insurers, right? That's We won't need a lot of agreement for that. The problem is the who is going to be the person in the Straits and the Orizons, you know, off Elsinore and Helsingborg, what, um, monitoring and checking and talking to tankers, because it will apply a little pressure to, could be seen as quite inflammatory. You know, we'll have to be willing to send war vessels right to do this it's um it's a painful thought it's quite quite a high risk one as well you know, arguably i mean it's very provocative right incredibly provocative i mean the, the the humiliation from a russian point of view if they are sailing out of the baltic to find you know that great naval power of denmark commandeering tankers from them I don't I mean commandeering is too strict, it's not quite the right word, but effectively running checks on them and trying to make life difficult. You know, what's to what's to stop Russia trying to run one an oil tanker or a convoy of oil tankers flanked by by Russian frigates or, or warships? It's possible. We don't know yet. You start getting into unknown territory, but are there risks there? Absolutely, I would think. I mean, it's the kind of incident that can create potential for escalation that I th at the moment I don't think anyone in, in NATO or I, I would imagine Moscow particularly wants to see. So yeah, there, there, are, there are challenges there, certainly. I mean, certainly a few eyebrows were, were raised with the, the Danish suggestion. That's why I say I have my doubts that it will actually come to fruition, but who knows? I mean, there is also, understandably, a great deal of anger and concern in, in Europe about how Russia has behaved, what it's done to Ukraine, what it continues to do, and, and a sense of, we've got to get tough on this at some point, guys. Maybe the right time to get tough on this was 18 months ago. Maybe we should have sanctioned the whole lot back then and just taken the pain in the moment rather than trying to fix 
fix things over time with a slightly clever, clever approach that that is harder to to push on just now. But you know, there's always this there's always this balancing act about how much pain are we willing to take ourselves, how much risk are we willing to take on on behalf of our broader populations. So let me return to the attestations issue, because ultimately, if I can summarize it this way, you know, you may be able, let's say this idea of insurance requirements works, you may be able to force a larger volume of Russian oil exports back under the price cap because it has to rely on G7 services, insurance services in this case. That doesn't do very much if you cannot properly verify that the transaction actually took place under the price cap. And if I understand your uh, reporting correctly, then what the, the data is showing us is that, well, essentially all of Russian oil is sold above the cap while a significant share still goes with Western services. So there seems to be an issue with verifying if these transactions actually complied with, uh, with the price cap. And it seems to me or us that the current attestation system doesn't really produce the information that you need for that. So what could be done? First of all, do you agree with that? Second of all, what could be done to give enforcing authorities access to information that would actually allow them to determine if this was price cap compliant or not? You could do something relatively simple, which is you say that if you are insuring a vessel carrying Russian oil, the, rather than giving a sort of catch-all attestation that says, I promise I'm obeying the law here and now and forever, you say, okay, so I'm, I'm picking up a, I'm picking up a load in Primorsk. It's million barrels. It's priced at $58 and the shipping cost is $4 and the insurance cost is $2. And you send that information to your insurer who's obliged to share it with the authorities who have the capacity to check bank transfers, right? So they, they could make sure that the numbers involved match the real numbers that they're seeing through the banking system. You could, I mean, the ideal thing, I'd like all that information to be public, although I appreciate that that might not be possible, but at the very least, they need to be showing this stuff. I think you also, at that point, would also need to have guidance on what reasonable shipping costs are. So you'd need to have a, the insurer would need to be able to say, hang on a minute, $5 a barrel for that journey. No, 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 no. $3 is all you're allowed to spend per barrel on on that particular sort of voyage, that kind of thing. You need to you need to arm them and give them rules and guidance and, and regulation so that they can they can start applying pressure down the line. I think that's the way you kind of you can sort of use some of this to make it work. And it I mean it's possible it will squeeze out the western insured vessels altogether and they will have to find they will find other vessels but that kind of brings us back to square one, right? That's not a, that might be a, only a few months reprieve, but that might be worth going for. And then it, it moves us to thinking about the, the core of this problem, which is the buyers, right? It's the Chinese and Indian buyers and whether we can find some mechanism to support them to do what the West would like them to do, whether that is threatening them with secondary sanctions or some political settlement or, or a diplomatically negotiated plan that tries to bring them on this point into the sort of into the western tent i mean that's a really difficult ask i've had sanctions officials officials say to me fundamentally the problem is that as long as india is going to buy this oil there's very little that you know we're, we're kind of tinkering around the edges there's always going to be this big flow of money and it's going to be very hard to control and that, and that problem comes back to the the sort of the original sin of the price gap which is 
it's never just been about stopping Russia getting money. You want to stop Russia getting money, you could impose a much stricter sanctions regime from day one. But the blowback potentially on the world economy and so on would be much larger. That's always been the argument. This again, this political fear, this econ- and this genuine economic fear of the oil market getting out of control and prices going too high. Personally, I, th- I think there's there's arguments for they could have gone a lot stronger that they underestimated the ability of Western economies to respond, as we saw with the gas market. Yes, we saw an extreme spike in gas prices. Don't get me wrong. It was incredibly painful. It continues to be painful. It was uncomfortable. But the lights haven't gone off. We have found ways to adjust to it. And we have seen gas prices not normalized, but they've come way, way down from their highs. If that's what people wanted to see to kind of really hurt the economy of Russia, or more to the point, really hurt the coffers of the Kremlin, then the argument is, should they have just gone harder in the first place on this? As long as you're trying to ride two horses at once of, we want to hurt Russia's revenues, but also we don't want to hurt us. We want to keep the price of oil really low because ultimately you're dealing with what is what Russia is the third largest oil exporter in the world. That's why they've not gone so hard. Russia's got 10 million barrels. It's 10% world supply. It's a lot. Commodity markets move on small changes in supply and demand. But I think also Western powers have underestimated, as I say, as demonstrated by the gas market, our ability to adapt. And if they wanted to go hard, perhaps that should have been the way to do it early on and may have had more impact. The the price cap has had an impact. It has hurt the amount of money over the course of the last 11 months or so flowing into Moscow. I think of that, there is little doubt. But now it's starting to unravel a little bit. And that raises this big question of, okay, what do you do next? Do you tinker at the margin and try and increase a little bit of pain? Or do you do something more aggressive, which perhaps should have been done? 18 months ago. What what I don't think we know at the moment, an unknown in this, is whether the attempts to take out individual traders, individual ships, individual ship owners is likely to have much of an effect as well. So the, the, because we can't see the plumbing underneath, we're, we don't really know, to be honest. And that's a, that is an unknown. And I think that's where, that's the, the thing is about that is the good thing about them doing that is it's actually, it's very low cost. Like it's we the, it doesn't doesn't impose anything on us. It's all all the cost of these actions are borne by them. So you can really you can be quite aggressive on that on that stuff. Yeah, we don't we don't know how effective it will be. So I know we're com- coming up towards the end of um, our time slot. So first, you mentioned the the buyers that are that are part of this equation and part of the problem. So the initial idea was that these buyers would be very much interested to buy oil under the cap because it would be cheaper and they would benefit from from the different prices uh, from this discount on Russian oil. That doesn't seem to have worked as intended. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah, well, at the beginning, the, the discount, as David said, was enormous. So they were, they, they were able to get really big discounts on world benchmark prices. But fundamentally, it's like those, it's like those old ultimatum game exercises that... 
that you that economic students are often subjected to where any discount is better than no discount and fundamentally there are only a small number of russian providers so if they say if you as an indian buyer were to say we're going to buy from you we know you've got to sell for under 60 dollars barrel so we're going to say no more than 65 dollars the um that's sort of not how the universe works what the, the way the response will be well you know what you can pay 85 dollars to that guy over the road or you can pay 81 dollars to us and we'll give you some paperwork that will get you through the questions that will show that it was all shipping costs that'll do any discount is better than than no discount and if the alternative is in particular because of the loss of russian supply and even higher oil price from everyone else that's particularly bad for the refiners in simple terms, oil is a high-volume, low-margin business normally. A simple term for, for economic students anyway. You're talking about shipments of 700,000, 1 million, 2 million barrels at a time. So a discount of 5 bucks compared to the international benchmark price is big. It's not huge like it was back in, back in the spring when it was maybe $40 a barrel which really was putting the pain on Russia. But five bucks a barrel, if you were the refiner sitting at the end of it, making that profit, every tanker you bring in, five million for, for doing what? A little bit of extra paperwork or a little bit of dancing, you know, to make, make the cash flow, pay, make the cash payments work to the Russian company. If you don't have a, a morality, a moral objection to dealing with Russia, you're going to do it. Most oil traders dream of a margin of like $5 a barrel. Normally, you're happy as an oil trader to buy a cargo of crude oil at, say, $80 a barrel and sell it for $80.10 a barrel. Because over the, the volume, the huge size of an oil tanker means you still make a lot of money and you do 100 of those in a year and you make an awful lot of money indeed. That's, that's basically where we're at right now. The, the discount is shrunk to a size that doesn't particularly hurt the coffers of the Kremlin, but it's still big enough the guys that are capturing that effective risk premium for dealing with Russia sitting in India, it's still worthwhile to them. It's been, I mean, I think there are two reasons to think that the two sort of more optimistic notes maybe to end on, right? So the first is, it's striking that Indian buyers still feel they have to go along with pretending the price cap is working right they, they there is there is evident fear about what the us might do so that's the first thing right so they they there there may be some effect on that side the other thing is there is a cost to all of this chicanery one of which is the opportunity for third parties to loot the cash is much higher under this system so the this a lot of this money must be in being paid in rupees. It must be ending up through going through third party shipping companies. And it may be that the while the Russian Treasury is seeing a lot from this from this revenue, there may actually be less than we think because there is an opportunity to steal it here and and that may be being absorbed. So I mean, I'm not a big fan of of kleptocrats, but they're better them than the Kremlin, right? This is a, a judo move against uh, using Russia's corruption against itself. Hardly play there. Yeah, I mean, it's not what you'd aim for, but like in the yeah. in, when you're when you're, we're we're looking for consolations, right? Well, I, I appreciate the uh, somewhat more optimistic take. Uh, before you wrap up, I wanted to ask David a a kind of final question, which is: 
since we started with your summary of, of where we are with the price cap and the sanctions regime. So aside from the enforcement issues, if this proposal to impose insurance requirements is not implemented or is implemented and doesn't work, then ultimately the price caps leverage at some point will just continue to evaporate. So if we don't make that work, what is the alternative? Because at some point, the objective to reduce Russia's revenues from its oil sales is still at the forefront of, of thinking in many capitals in, in the US and in Europe. So so what's next if the price cap doesn't work? And are these in any way realistic options? Yeah, I'm very tempted to say, give Ukraine a lot more arms and do it that way. You know, let's stop messing around with sort of very clever, clever sanctions. And ultimately, this is about winning a war. But that's probably going a little bit above my pay grade and beyond my area of expertise. So if you let me roll back a little bit to the oil side, what, what could be done? There's there's a, still a few things. You can increase, you can look at stricter sanctions. The hardest ones to do, arguably, are so-called secondary sanctions, where you target the buyers as well. They're the kind of sanction regimes that are in place against Iran, which would effectively say, hey, Mr. Indian refiner, you're complicit. If you're buying this, whether that's a discount or not, we'd like that to stop now. And if you continue to buy it, we will sanction you. I don't personally think that's massively likely, but it's an option. Realistically, I think the options that are being pursued right now, such as tightening enforcement, making examples of a few people, frankly, which we're starting to see, but, you know, do we see a... Greek shipping magnet facing losing access to the US financial system, for example. I think you could see some changes in thinking very quickly because that spreads among a tight group of individuals that run a large part of the shipping world if they think that they could be at serious risk of not being able to travel to the US, not being able to use the US financial system, that kind of thing. If they are found to have been a little bit lax in checking just how their ships operated during this price cap regulation. Thank you very much. I wanted to thank you for all your work on, on this topic. I think you've shed a lot of light uh, in your reporting and <clears throat> during this conversation on what is actually going on. And without your reporting, we wouldn't know nearly as much about what Russia is doing and how it is able to circumvent and violate the price cap. So thank you for that. To our listeners, thank you for your time and your engagement. I hope that today's discussion has offered you fresh perspectives on these issues. Uh, if you found this episode informative and wish to continue exploring such critical issues with us, I encourage you to sign up so you don't miss any of our content. For updates, do follow us on Twitter at KSC Institute. We have an exciting lineup of guests and topics in the pipeline. And uh, yeah, thank you again for being part of this enlightening journey. Um, this is Benjamin Hilgenstock saying until next time. Bye.